Recovery Elevator, episode 175. That separation of, of the person who I wanted to project that I was versus the person that I had, had become and the things that I was doing, it was, it was terrifying. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 3.75 years. On today's podcast, we've got Chris. He's been sober for 294 days. He's a father of two, and he's from North Dakota. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I locked it. I'd like to talk to you guys today about anxiety and alcohol. Oh, anxiety. Anxiety was one of the big reasons I quit drinking and also one of the big reasons I continue to drink. Oh, quite the pickle I found myself in and I know I'm not the only one. We're going to cover anxiety before drinking, before addiction takes hold. We're going to cover anxiety during our drinking, where it goes, what happens, and then we're going to cover anxiety after we're drinking. More specifically, the acute anxiety we experience after a binge or after we sober up. We're also going to explore if this uncomfortable anxiety will ever go away, or are our brains now permanently wired for a constant state of unease? And after the interview with Chris, I'm going to cover some of my own anxiety, the reasons, what it means, what it stands for, and I'm going to cover an email I got that gave me a ton of anxiety. So let's cover anxiety, that state of unease before we drink. And also anxiety, another word for it, can be stress. The first step is to acknowledge that anxiety is inevitable. However, its effects are not. Anxiety shows that you care about what you're doing, and it's when you forget about why you care that you start to struggle with the negative effects of stress and anxiety. Some anxiety is extremely healthy, but again, like I just mentioned, it's when we forget about why we care, when we forget about why some of this anxiety is extremely healthy, that's when it becomes an uncomfortable problem. In fact, the bigger problem would be if we didn't have anxiety. Anxiety would tell a human being in pre-modern times if he has strayed too far away from his tribe. Ironically, anxiety will tell a human being in modern times if he has strayed too far away from his tribe. Anxiety indicated danger is on the horizon, or that danger was in the form of a lion behind shrubbery. Shrubbery. I love that word. In fact, I'm going to make a point to use that more in this podcast. So what if I can't find a reason for my anxiety? Do I even have reasons to be anxious? By its very nature, chronic anxiety, as we also heard as generalized anxiety disorder, has nothing to do with reasons. 
First, it springs into being, and much later, when we develop the ability to think, it recruits thoughts and explanations to serve it, to give it reason. So in contrast to healthy anxiety, like I just covered, for which a better word is fear felt in the danger, like when a gazelle sees a lion, or that a small child might feel when his parents are not in sight, chronic anxiety is not rooted in the experience of the moment. What I'm getting at is the anxiety we feel does not match the current situation. This anxiety precedes thought. The maladaptive brain wire has been there for years, perhaps decades, and that's where the chronic anxiety is coming from. We may believe that we are anxious about this or that, body image, the state of the world, relationship issues, the weather, but no matter what story we weave around it, anxiety just is. And like addiction itself, anxiety will always find a target, but exists independently of its targets. Only when we become aware of it does it wrap itself in identifiable colors. More often, we repress it. I know I did that for a long time. We bury it under ideas, identifications, beliefs, and relationships. I buried it under alcohol for quite some time. We often build above it a mound of activities and attributes that we mistake for our true selves. We then expend our energies trying to convince the world that our self-made fiction is reality. I did a good job of convincing myself that my self-made fiction was a reality. As genuine as our strengths and achievements may be, they cannot feel but hollow until we acknowledge the anxiety they cover up. Some of that was pulled from Dr. Gaber Mate's book In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He does a phenomenal job of discussing the deep roots of where anxiety is covered. So it's the anxiety that seems to show up for no apparent reason. This was the anxiety that crushed me. This is the anxiety that I've heard from several listeners that seems to crush a lot of people. It's the level of anxiety that's rarely congruent with the environment in which it was derived upon. When we experience this type of generalized anxiety, your brain naturally takes a shortcut to create your perception of the world. Yet we rarely take time to stop and check in with ourselves to see if this perception is accurate and even helpful. Next time you experience this anxiety, see if you can look at the situation from a different angle to get a more balanced view of the situation. Ask yourself these kinds of questions with compassionate curiosity to get a more holistic view of the anxiety. Ask yourself, was my reaction or is this anxiety in line with the issue at hand? If not, then it's most likely an implicit reaction based off past trauma, a reaction that has been pre-wired in our brains for perhaps decades. This exercise alone is enough to drastically mitigate the uncomfortable feelings the anxiety produces. Okay, so that's the anxiety before drinking. Let's talk about anxiety during a drinking and what it does. Is the alcohol some magic elixir that actually makes our anxiety go away? Well, in the previous 174 episodes, we have found that alcohol is shit and it doesn't do any of that for you. But here's what it does. So alcohol has absolutely zero therapeutic effect in our brains and doesn't do anything to address the anxiety. What it does is it slows down your brain function. All of it. And it does this by affecting the brain neurotransmitters glutamate and GABA. By suppressing glutamate, you literally will be thinking slower. It's like pouring thick molasses in your brain. You're just going to think and move slower. Alcohol increases the production of GABA in the brain, resulting in sedation and diminished thinking. Again, reducing the functions of these brain faculties does nothing to mitigate anxiety in the long term. You're basically less alive than you were before you took that first drink. So I'll be honest, alcohol is shit. However, for my acute anxiety, it worked until it didn't work, and then I was in big trouble. So that's anxiety while we're drinking. Let's look at anxiety after we're drinking. Okay, 
So we experienced an intense bout of anxiety. We drank 57 My Card Lemonades, and apart from the splitting headache, now we have more anxiety than ever. What the f***? After a heavy night of drinking or after a binge, it's common to get severe anxiety the next day. In fact, it can even last for days or even weeks past the nights of heavy drinking. Is that anxiety still related to drinking and what's causing it? Is it mental or chemical or what? There is a chemical component that leads to anxiety after drinking. Alcohol takes between 72 and 240 hours to leave your body. It can take up to 10 days to recover from the lows of drinking. A heavy drinker starts to regard these lows as a normal homeostasis. The lows are created when your brain releases a chemical dynorphin, which counteracts the pleasure from alcohol in an attempt to maintain homeostasis. This is also known as tolerance. Dynorphin not only dampens the effect of alcohol, it also turns down the natural pleasure you get from everyday activities. You don't have to be Einstein to recognize this is not good. So as your body is working so hard to reestablish homeostasis, your chemical levels in the brain are way off balance, and thus you are experiencing anxiety after drinking. Alcohol changes levels of serotonin and other neurotransmitters in the brain, which can worsen anxiety. Interesting thing about serotonin is 80% of it is created in the gut. Interesting. So we have covered alcohol and anxiety before, during, and after our alcohol consumption. Let's take a look and see how this can turn into a hamster wheel of addiction. Number one, we resort to alcohol to cope with anxiety, which can be an implicit response from past traumas. Number two, if these implicit responses from past traumas haven't already given us a generalized anxiety disorder, we can then develop this disorder. Number three, we then need alcohol and become more dependent on it to mitigate the feelings of this generalized anxiety disorder or the chronic anxiety. Alcohol can work for a time, then it doesn't. Number four, we then experience hyper-anxiety, aka the worst f***ing anxiety we've ever felt after drinking. And step five, we arrive at a choice. We must decide if we are going to continue to drink, stay in the hamster wheel of addiction, or get off. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of the lucky ones who has already made the decision to get off, or you're thinking and contemplating and realizing that it's probably a good idea to get off that hamster wheel. So anxiety, it sucks. Is my brain toast forever? Well, here's the good news. Our brains remain use-dependent our entire lives. The plasticity of our brains well into our golden years is incredible. For example, a part of the hippocampus, a brain structure important for memory, has been shown to be much larger than average in London cabbies. This size increase was correlated with the number of years they had been driving cabs. The longer you drive a cab, the more streets you have to memorize. According to brain researcher Antonio Damasio, the design of the brain circuits continues to change. The circuits are not only receptive to the results of the first experience, but are repeatedly pliable and modifiable to continued experience. This is the best news of all. I'm serious. This is really good news. We have the ability to naturally rewire and change our brains. Now, changing and rewiring our brains takes arduous effort, but it can be done. I know it can be done because I've done it. I'm continuing to do it, and I see the people in Cafe Airy every day do the same. Okay, now let's hear from Chris. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well, brother. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Chris, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Today is 294 days. August 9th of last year was my first day sober. Wow. Congratulations on that, Chris. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Do you have a family? And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? 
I'm 36. I live in central North Dakota. I'm a power plant operator. A grateful to be a husband to my beautiful wife, Amy, and a dad to two kids. My daughter's 11. My son is seven. And we've got a stupid lab hound mix who's about a year and a half. <laughs> and Sorry, uh, I made me laugh. <laughs> oh, he's pain, but he's, he loves kids, so we'll keep him. For fun, I like to... Uh, Love camping and boating with my family. That's probably our, our number one hobby as a family. I also enjoy cooking, photography. I got into, when I sobered up last year, I got into wood turning, like making bowls and cups and stuff with a wood lathe. Cool. Yeah, and I, ju I just like trying all sorts of new things. But camping and boating, that is our number one. Yeah, Chris, we got something in common. We both live in the northern part of this country. I'm in Montana, you're in North Dakota. And uh, it seems like summer showed up six days ago. Um, you know, what are you, what are you most excited about this summer? Uh, just kind of making up for lost time. We just started our camping season and we've got, we just have a lot of kind of tumultuous times out at the lake in the past, just, you know, like when I was active in my drinking and I just, I'm so fortunate to, to be in the place that I am with my family right now. So just spending quality time with them, making memories with them and just kind of continuing to build that relationship that we have with one another. And I'm excited for you and I'm excited for myself to continue to get camping back for what it was originally intended to be. Some of the best memories I have in my life are camping with my parents, my brother in Lake Powell, Southern Utah, in the mountains of Colorado. And it was camping, enjoying being outside. And it's where I energize and recharge. And slowly that shifted to camping became this just like an excuse to get wasted. And yeah, I'm excited for you. And you know, just being outside in the nature's nature without a substance called alcohol. Um, talk to a little bit about that. Yeah, it's it's just gonna it's gonna be good. Like you know, like you said, once this thing got introduced into my life, it just it took over and it turned you know something that's supposed to be so pure and genuine and it just this great experience of you know being outdoors, being in nature, being away from you know the hustle and bustle of work and town. You know, not being able to spend time with my family because it's so preoccupied with this junk. Just the little bit of time that we've spent out there already, it's just being able to be present for my kids, be able, you know, I got up this morning. I was the first one up this morning. And we were out at the lake and I got up. I went out, sat at the picnic table, looked over the lake. I was able to do like my morning readings. I went and did some walking meditation. And just for the past few years, it just that was not there. And it's it just feels so good to be in the place that I'm in. And I just, I look forward to see, you know, what that can turn into. It's just, it's been great. And Chris, it sounds like you're leveraging some of the highlights in sobriety. And one of them is the morning times. You're, you're outdoors, getting up early in the morning, doing your morning readings outside at a picnic table while the sun's coming up. That's gorgeous, right? Yeah. It's, it, it just, does, man, it just doesn't get any better than that, Paul. Yeah. And it, it doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. No, it's like every morning's a new experience. I don't know. Like you can appreciate the, you know, the birds and there's some geese out there fighting this morning. That was kind of funny, but <laughs> you can just appreciate the, just the different, the, every morning's a little different. The sun's shining a little different. The clouds are a little different. Sky's a different color. And it's just, you can just take it in and embrace just what God has given us. And, and man, we are, we are fortunate people on this side of that disease or, you know, to be able to continue to work on the things that we're working on. Absolutely, Chris. And that's what we need to focus on because you and I have this conversation. We're, we're one of the lucky ones. A lot of people don't have, uh, you know, the, the, the luck that we have to have made it this far in dealing with that's their disease. And that's the best part about this podcast is just chatting with other like-minded individuals. It's awesome. And, and Chris, let's, 
Let's back it up a little bit. You're 36 years old, been sober for almost 300 days, which is incredible. When did you first realize that uh, you know alcohol might not be sitting well with you? Oh man, there's so many times where where I've been told in the past that that hey maybe you should straighten something out. It all kind of came to a head last summer. You know, like a lot of people, I started drinking like in high school. I was a senior in high school when I first first kind of dipped into it, and <clears throat> I've heard it. I've heard it explained a couple ways, like we could be born with this addiction or allergy or whatever terminology you want to use, or it's also possible to kind of drink ourselves into it. And I was one of those guys from the first time that I tried it. I liked how it felt. I liked that kind of freedom that I thought that it was giving me. You know, it kind of was a social lubricant, greased the wheels for me. And I, cr I craved it from the first time. In high school, I just kind of drank socially. When I first joined the military out of high school, it was a, a social thing to begin with, but it just, it, you know, it's progressive and it just gets worse. It got worse and worse. My first tour overseas, I was 21 mm -hmm. and I went to, I went to Korea for a year and that's really when I started to, to use alcohol as, as a crutch for my situation. And, you know, Korea was, had the potential to be an awesome experience, but you know, I was away from home, away from family, away from friends. Um, I was engaged to my wife at the time. And, you know, that, that relationship was tough, being long distance. And I really, during that year, started to lean heavily. You know, whenever I had feelings of being lonely or sad, that I had this place that I could go, this thing that I could lean on. And I thought it was taking care of me. And that that year I, is was really when I started to use those excuses. Well, you don't understand you know, because I would call my wife drunk and it would be the middle of the day for her and she'd be upset with me. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand what I've got, what I'm going through. You don't, you know, you don't get, you don't get, you don't get. And like, like you've talked about on the podcast before, that, that terminal uniqueness was really setting in with me. Oh, so that, that's big. That my, my problems, the things that I was going through is different than anybody else. It didn't, there was 5,000 people at the installation that I was at, but they, you know, they didn't get it either. It was, Chris has got something different. Um, you know, that that's a huge value bomb. And that the word terminal uniqueness hasn't come up in the last 15 or 20 podcasts. But explain to us a little bit more about what that is. And you kind of did. But it, it's a huge concept in recovery. Yeah, it's just it's this lie that we tell ourselves that that our situation is is so, you know, it's so unique. There's you know, there's something so different about you know, nobody had the childhood that I did. Nobody's had the experiences in the military that I did. You know, whatever, whatever might have come my way, nobody else gets that. And we lie to ourselves and, and tell ourselves that that's true. We're focusing on the differences, not the similarities. And I think where that becomes terminal is, you know, when we believe those lies, it it just it it allows us to continue down this path of illness and disease. And if I hadn't you know, if I hadn't had my awakening or whatever, it would it would have killed me. One hundred percent. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, I don't know if it would have been this year, next year, or twenty years down the road. But me thinking that I was so unique and that you know alone in this, it would have killed me. There's no there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I love how you connected the dots between terminal uniqueness and and focusing on the differences and not the similarities. And what I'm going to connect the dot one step further is when you're focused on the differences, not the similarities, it's impossible for us to find a tribe. Without a tribe, we're not able to get sober. Uh, yeah, community is so important. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so we got another thing in common. We're both 36 years old, both, both born in the beautiful year of 1982. Great. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, that was about the same age for me. I went out to Spain and bought a bar. You went to Korea <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I found alcohol was, did it, did work for me for a little bit. I was, I was scared. I was in this different country that dislocated from everything that I knew, friends, family, and culture, whatever. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where it happened for me. And, and so, and, and so pick it up where we left off. You're 21 and, and keep going down the road for us. Yeah. So, you know, that was my, that was my coping mechanism when I was overseas. I came back in 2005. I was there from uh, summer of 04 to summer of 05. Came back, uh, got stationed in South Carolina. That's when my wife and I, that's when we got married. Next Monday is, will be 13 years for us, by oh, the way. Congrats. Thanks, man. So we got married that summer. She had just finished college to be a teacher. We're freshly married. We've been in this like three, three and a half year long, long distance relationship. We're married. We're together. When we're in South Carolina that first summer, you know, we kind of drank like a lot of people our age did. I, you know, I had obviously mellowed out from when I was in Korea, mm -hmm. but we, we still, you know, we still probably drank more than the average average person. But in our little community, you know, like everybody says on here, it's, that's how it was where we were. It was normal. But that summer, it was it was harder for me because I wanted to go at that pace that I was in in Korea. And Korea was kind of a shit show. We worked hard, played hard. And I it was tough for me. I really, it was difficult for me to slow that pace down. And I started to have, you know, I started to think about it a lot more than I had ever in the past. January of 06, uh, my wife got pregnant. And that was a no-brainer for her as far as, you know, does she continue to drink? No, sure. she just, sure. she just stopped. Uh, there was no, she didn't struggle with it at all. And after we had our daughter, she was just, you know, she grew up. And I think that happens to a lot of people. They're like, all right, I've got somebody else in my life I got to take care of. And it was, it was no problem for her to shut it off. But for me, it was, it was tough. We would still, we would go to events and functions. And that's, I started to get those looks from her. Like, what are you doing, dude? Like, and I'm like, shit, I don't know how long before she's going to catch on. So I better, and I just start pounding beers. And, and I really, that was kind of the, the first time too, that there was, you know, we have these, these lines of our morals and our actions. And we, you know, we like to think that those things are going to be on par with each other. You know, there's some of that in Korea too, but there was a, a big line that I always said, oh, I'm never going to be a drunk driver. That's, you know, that's stupid. I'm, I would never do that. I'm not going to endanger myself, other people. And I remember crossing that line and it's because we were at a party. Everybody else was asleep. I was at a beer and I wasn't done. And it was, you know, one o'clock in the morning and it's like, you know what? I'll be okay. And I remember that first time that I ever got behind the wheel and there's, you know, I had no business walking, let alone driving. And I remember going to a gas station getting a, you know, an 18 pack and going back and staying up for a couple more hours drinking by myself. And man, I just, I remember how bad that felt, but my mind, that disease just kept saying, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal, dude. It, it you went a couple blocks, you didn't get in trouble. You didn't hurt anybody. And it just, that addiction just starts working at me and it, it normalized it. And it, it's crazy how that, that, that progresses into other things. Oh, the normalization, the justification of how our addiction can twist things in our brain. It's scary. It's scary. And, and there's two types of white knuckling. Number one is, you know, you're a dry drunk in sobriety. You're not working a program and that is painful. And there's another type of white knuckling it where you're not ready to quit or the idea of quitting has not popped in your mind. But you're solely focused on moderation, right? Like shutting it down when your friends shut yep. it down. And that they're equally is exhausting because stopping drinking after two to three beers is like that is painful. 
Yeah, it's it just you're right. It's painful is a good word because it's like it hurts. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I mean, like 99 of 100 times, I wasn't able to do it. Yeah, so yeah, bring us forward to in, in your 30s, and and did you hit a rock bottom moment? You know what? And how much were you drinking? So we get out of the military, we move to Iowa, Iowa for a couple of years, and we finally come up to North Dakota. When we were in South Carolina, just I also did a six month trip in Iraq, and I was a generator guy in the Air Force, so I stayed on base. I wasn't out kicking indoors, uh, you know, I wasn't involved in some heavy trauma, but it was it was a tough kind of a tough experience for six months, and that was just another. The reason I mention that is just another, you know, another little thing that I had on my belt of addiction to be like, hey, this is another experience that you don't get. It was another way for me to allow myself to separate myself sure. from my family and friends. Yeah. But when we get up to North Dakota, we moved up here because I had an excellent opportunity to work in a power plant, dream job for a guy like me. I got to the point where I was drinking last summer. I was drinking about a case of there, uh, a case of pounders, 16 ounce beers, probably five to six days a week. And we had had my, we had ended up having my son when we moved up here. And my wife and I probably had about two years of, of ultimatums that she was giving me where she's like, Chris, you got to do something about this or, or I'm going to go. Sure. And, and she, things had just gotten, they had gotten bad. Driving drunk had become, it was a normal thing for me. I talked about that, you know, that delineation between our morals and our values. I was I was never going to drive drunk. I was doing that on a regular basis. Some of the stuff that I had said to my wife, just, you know, those, you think of those words that you never say to a woman and that, man, that stuff just started to come out on a regular basis. Anytime she would confront me about my drinking or my usage, I got, I was so scared, so terrified that that, that, that thing was going to be taken away from me that I would just, I would say whatever I had to say just to get her to it had gotten so bad that I wasn't going to try to pacify her that I was just, how can I turn her off and turn her away from me is what's the quickest way I can do that. So I can go back to my thing. There was times where, you know, I would be either drunk or just having that anxiety. And I think that's probably even the scarier moments is when I would have that anxiety of like, I didn't know it's a Sunday and North Dakota is kind of a blue state. It's tough to buy alcohol on a Sunday. <laughs> it's, it's the, some of the stores were open, but they would close early and, yeah. And how am I going to get through the rest of my night? And I would yell at my kids and my kids. I just, yeah. those are, I just remember the look on my kid's face when, you know, they won't eat their vegetables and it wasn't even about would they eat their vegetables. It's just like, I'm, I've got this terrified, terrifying anxiety and, and I'm just going to project that out in whatever way I can. And it, those kids took the lash. I never, never would I ever drive drunk with my kids. You know, those are the most important things to me. And Man, I did that more times than I even care to think about. And it just, that separation of, of the person who I wanted to project that I was versus the person that I had, had become and the things that I was doing, it was, it was terrifying. But kind of the, the low moment, I got a lot of lows, but my wife and I, like I said, we'd, she had been giving me these ultimatums because she, she just didn't know what to do. She had turned towards the church. And I had turned towards alcohol. I was upset with her because I felt like she was absent in our relationship because she was at church. And thank God that that's the place that she went. And I remember talking to a counselor. And I'm like, well, she's at church all the time. And they're like, she's like, well, where in the hell have you been, Chris? I'm like, oh, shit. You're right. But last summer, um, we got into, man, we got into a big fight. And I just, I didn't know what else to do. I, just, I, I felt like there was no way I could go the rest of my life without having a drink. And that's what she wanted. And I told her one night, I'm like, tell, you know, tell me who your attorney is, because I just don't know what else to do. And she starts crying and she left. 
And as soon as she left, I'm just like, what did you do, dude? And I just I had this immediate remorse and, and a couple of days went by and we had had some conversations and I'm like, you know, Hey, let's, you, you know, we can work on this. And, and she's like, no, we need to spend some time apart. And I was still drinking, trying to figure out what's, you know, in my mind, it's like, what's the least that I could do. And I remember I ordered the big book and I ordered this naked mind. And I remember calling her, Hey, I ordered this book from AA and this other book and this naked mind, you know, what appealed me to that is like, you know, how can we, I forget how, how she describes it, but it's kind of misleading the way she sells that book is you think that you're going to be able to control this thing when you look at it <laughs> until you read it. And then yeah. you're like, Oh, she got me. Yeah. But, but I tell my wife, I'm like, I ordered these books, you know, it's good. We can, you know, she, I kind of got moved out to the camper. She was at home and, and she's like, nah, man, that's not, that's not enough. And I remember I was just appalled with her. Like, what is your problem? I ordered two books off Amazon. That's, that's not enough to fix how many years of, of BS I put you through. But I ended up making an appointment with my regular doctor and making an appointment with a pastor. My my faith life had just, it. I grew up Catholic. Her and I used to go to church together. And I just, I felt like my addiction made me feel like, like God had abandoned me. Again, that terminal uniqueness, I was alone. And I had no intention of keeping these appointments. I just thought making them would get her to let me back in and, and it didn't. So I ended up going to see the doctor. I told him I had a physical, you know, I wanted a physical. The night before I went to the doctor, she came out to the lake and thank God she did. She kind of unloaded on me, not not yelling, but she was just crying. And she's like, are you going to tell these people all the things that you've done, Chris? And I'm like, well, yeah, I drink too much. And that's in my mind. That was it. I just drank too much. Mm -hmm. And she just, she let go of all these hurt, of a, a bunch of hurts that she had built up. And it was stuff that I just, I hadn't even considered. Wow. And that was one of the first moments that I realized, like, oh my God, what have I been doing to this woman? It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the full connection at that point, but it was, it was the beginning of it. So I saw my doctor kind of told him, I just told him about my drinking. He gets on his bat phone, gets an addiction counselor available for me in our little, you know, we live in a small town. I meet with a counselor and I told her, I remember sitting down and I told her, I said, I don't know, I've, you know, I've never been to counseling. I don't know how to do this. This isn't my thing, but I guess I need some help. I don't even know how to talk to a counselor. Two hours went by and I thought it was like somebody had, you know, snapped their fingers. Mm-hmm. And I just had unloaded on her for two hours crying, telling, you know, I told her, I said, my wife wanted me to, wanted you to know that this is how she feels. And I said, I didn't even realize that, that I was, you know, I had my blinders on. I didn't even realize what I was putting out there. And then I met with my pastor that afternoon. Ended up going and doing an an assessment. And in our town, they told us, they're like, you can't, we don't have the resources for you in our town. So I ended up going to Bismarck, which is about 70 miles from where we're at, for an intensive outpatient program. And I was driving 70 miles each way, three days a week for about two months. And that was... That's probably one of the best things I've ever done for myself. Wait, did you go to inpatient or outpatient? Sorry about that. I did in, intensive outpatient. Oh, okay. Intensive outpatient. I knew you went in some, some sort of treatment because intensive outpatient. Okay. Yeah, I started to go to IOP and IOP was good just because there's a, the best thing about IOP is there were, for me was the educational aspect of it. There was so much stuff that I just, you know, I was kind of, I mean, other than all my drinking stuff, I was kind of a straight laced guy. So I just, there's a lot of education, things that I just didn't understand about what addiction does to our minds. And Can you, can you share a couple of those nuggets with us? 
Yeah, just some like they talk about neuroplasticity and my explanations of this stuff are, are not very good, but just how <clears throat> these different receptors on our brain, how it can just throw our, our chemicals off whack and how, just kind of how develop uh, addiction develops with, you know, needing these needing these chemicals to kind of keep our brain normal. So, yeah, just to know that there is like a scientific component to it. For me, it, I don't know. It felt like I wasn't like I wasn't so sick. Like to learn that it wasn't a moral, necessarily a moral failing. That sure. there's reasons that this happens was was kind of a good, re, a great relief to me. And it, like it kind of dissolves a terminal uniqueness as well. When you get the knowledge and the information, say, wait, okay, maybe I'm not the one out of 10 million people on the planet that are going through this. Yeah, and it was, you know, I, but I still had it when I went into treatment. It was a, kind of a mixed group. There was two other people in my group, my initial group of 12. There was two other people in there for alcohol, and the rest were there for, you know, different stuff, either methamphetamines, opiates, marijuana. And I was like, what the hell am I doing in here with these guys? I don't I've got nothing in common with these people. It's yeah. a bunch of bunch of drug addicts, and that it didn't take long before that kind of fell. But as I was going to back and forth to treatment, that, those got to be some long drives, and I'm just sitting there. My wife and I are separated. Uh, I don't know what to do. I started. That's that's when I started listening to this podcast, and man, some of the just the connections that I made listening to how many episodes of this, listening to listening to people articulate their feelings and you know that's not something that i'm really good at but listening to them it's like holy shit yeah that's how i feel i you know i've been through that you know it was like listening to a different version of my story over and over again and man just those connections they really 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 helped me kind of start to put some pieces together as as i entered my intensive outpatient the day that i signed up I told my wife and we were still, you know, we were still separated and I tell her, Hey, I'm scheduled to start treatment at this place on this day. So, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm doing what you wanted me to do. And she looked at me and she's like, Chris, she goes, I just, it's too much. I I just got to tell you, I filed for divorce and you're going to be, you're going to be getting papers in about a week. And I just looked at her. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like Amy, this, this isn't the right thing to do. We can't, you know? And she's like, she's like, I just can't go on. And, and I told her, I'm like, if you ever want to put a stop to this, just, just let me know, let me know and we'll do it. And, and I was, man, I was mad. I didn't, I didn't open up to those feelings right away. But like when I left the house, man, I was, I was upset and I was sad and I'm like, I'm doing all the, I'm doing all these things. What am I supposed to be doing? You know, what, what else can I do? And, you know, I'm a box checker and I was trying to check the boxes and man, when I realized that that maybe I'd gone too far. It just, it hurt. But going through treatment, listening to this podcast, and then about a month after I started treatment is when I joined Cafe RE. And that was really nice too, because I had this, you know, it wasn't face to face, but we had, you know, I remember the day after I signed up, we had a webinar and I just, I opened up to what was going on and instant feedback from all these people on the webinar. And when I introduced myself to the group on the page, bam, instant feed. There's all these people who are like, Hey, you know, I get it. We, you know, I've been through this type of city, you know, different people had that had been through similar situations. It was just another level of connection of people who understood what I was going through. And yeah, Chris, hang on. I gotta, there's, <laughs> there's so much I want to comment on before we, we, we move forward. And, right. and number one, I know there's more than, than 10 million people on the planet. I said that I was like, oops, there's uh, there's actually 50 million people on the planet. Just kidding. There's a couple billion. Uh, 
Um, but uh, Chris, you are very good at sharing your emotions and thoughts. I mean, w- sometimes I do these interviews and the person will stop talking and then because I'm, I'm like tearing up right now. Um, you just did an amazing job of explaining the progression. The line in the sand that you just surpassed, you justified it. And then the things you were saying to your wife that you're basically were grasping because we realized we realized that our world, that we have put up these safety nets in our own mind that includes alcohol, is being rattled at its core. And we fight. We fight and claw to not give that up. And it's painful. And, man, you did such a good job of just laying it out there. And I got to say, thank you for doing that. Cause a lot of people are going to relate to that, including myself, that sounded painful. And, and even, it even got worse. Like your wife gave you divorce papers while you signed up for int- <laughs> yeah. IOP. And, and I'm thinking, you, did you say 35 miles each way or 70, 70 miles each way, 70 miles each way. Like you got it. You gotta be kidding me. Like I, 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 the podcast, it doesn't come out yet, Chris, I've already recorded it. It comes out in like a week. It, it just talks about how brave and courageous we are. Chris, like you're you're like the front man of that podcast episode. Like, I can only imagine driving seventy miles each way to go to you know IOP. We're grasping. We want there's a, like a withdrawal effect. Like not just from the alcohol, but we realize we are leaving our old life behind us, yeah. both metaphorically and, and physically and mentally and spiritually. And that drive, you probably wanted to turn around at every turnout. Like, just talk to us about that and like where did the strength to move forward come from? Jesus. Oh, you just said it, my man, Jesus, gift of des- the gift of desperation. I just, I didn't know what else to do when, when, it, when I found out that, that these legal actions were going to be taken, I said, it was hard. I sat down and I, I had options. I could, I could go back and pick back up again, or I could see where this was going to take me. And I just was, man, it was, it was tough. And there was a night because I had gotten, I had gotten my big book, I had, I had gotten this naked mind, and I remember I read through the like the basic text, the first text, of the big book, like right away, and it's just listening to Bill's story or you know reading Bill's story is like holy smokes, like I I get it, you know I've got a different again another version of my story, and he talked about all these things that he had tried to do, and there was something in the in the big book when what was his buddy's name was it Ebby or Eddie, Eddie Thatcher? Oh yeah 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 Thatcher. Huh? Um, when, when he, anyway, when he, his friend had this spiritual awakening and like I had said earlier, man, my faith life had tanked. I felt like I'd been abandoned by God. You know, the things that I had seen when I was overseas and there's no way that, that this God is there. If he's there, is he there for me? And after reading that, it just, it, it sat heavy with me. I'm living in my camper. I don't know what I'm going to do facing this divorce. And I remember Paul, I'll never forget this night as long as I can live sitting in my camper and just looking up. And I just started crying and I just looked up and reached my arms out. And I was like, God, just please take this away from me. I don't just this guilt, this burden, the shame. I'm a Christian, you know, and I just I know that I I don't I wasn't designed to carry this around this. I don't have to. And as long as I, I commit to I'm going to do better, I'm going to do right by you. Just please take this away from me. And I just, you know, I said, I'm sorry for everything that I've done. And that night, Paul, like, I ain't kidding you, man. That was probably the first night and I don't know how many years that I got a good night's sleep without just getting completely obliterated. And wow. I just, I felt this relief. Like, you know, I felt like it was gone. Like all this, 
BS that I'd been carrying around for years, that anxiety that perpetuated my drinking, that even if I wasn't reminiscing about my tough times in the past, I would still wake up with this anxiety. And it was because of the bullshit that I had done the day before. And this anxiety from drinking would cause me to drink, you know, because I would give into it over and over and over again. And I just felt like that burden of my past had been lifted from me. Well, you um, realize you didn't have to carry the burden because you gave up control. That's when like, you just stopped fighting in that very moment. And I recall yeah. it vividly for myself as well, where the weight just falls off your shoulders and say, okay, I, I, it, I give up and I, I have, I'm powerless over this. I cannot yeah. beat it and I need help. And then instantly there was a conduit, you know, and your higher power entered your life. And whatever that higher power looks like, it's different for everybody. Mine at the time of my sobriety was the wind in the trees, right? It's just the burden was lifted. God, I'm so that's amazing. Yeah, that 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 surrender, it's such a it's terrifying because we think, you know, we think we've got to control our lives. We gotta control all this stuff, but to surrender that and just know just to find a way to be at peace with like I don't have to worry about this stuff as long as I'm doing and this is where these I used to hate when I'd hear one day at a time do the when I'd hear these like little cliche sayings I'm like get the frick out of here <laughs> that bullshit like what does that even mean yeah but you know you ask like how did I drive down to treatment and that was it and it's like you know what as long as I'm doing the next right what's the next right thing I got to go to class got to go to treatment one day at a time you know I'm my wife and I we're trying to navigate this divorce as I'm going through treatment and we're, you know, separating assets. And, and she was, she was glad that I was doing this stuff, but man, she was, she was hurting. She was hurting. And I had, you know, I had, I had done that to her and every interaction that we had, you know, some were good, some were bad, but man, every interaction that we, I had with her as we're trying to navigate, what are we going to do with our property? What are we going to do with our kids? You know, I would say the serenity prayer and it's like, God, just give me the strength to show this woman that I just, I don't want to hurt her anymore, that I just, I just wanted to try to do right by the world. And it was tough. It was tough, especially when we got into like what we were going to do with the kids. Yeah. It was, it's, she had a lot of hurt, you know, custody, you know, I wanted it split and she saw it differently. And I'm like, what are you, what are you trying to take my kids away from me? And she was just, she had been so scared just from the crap that I had pulled that she was just trying to protect herself and protect her kids. And I was lucky enough to have some friends and some counselors in my life to be like, Hey dude, you got to listen. You listen, you gotta, you gotta look at where she's coming from and what have you put her through? And Chris, I want to, I want to comment on that moment in the camper and that's going to tie just to what you just said. And you know, for a lot of people, the spirituality thing is, it's a tough thing to grapple with. Some people want to get sober. They walk into the religious spiritual program, AA, and they walk right out the door. So yeah, you had a spiritual awakening, but there's another way to phrase that is it's disillusionment of ego. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Basically it's not the same thing, but that's, that's a big part of it is where you're able to take your ego hat off. You're able to detonate your ego just enough, just enough to realize what I've been doing the last 15, 20 years of my life has caused myself a lot of pain, caused others around me a lot of pain, and it's not working. I'm done. Bring it on board. And, and like you were just saying, that allowed you know just enough, you know, f to kind of salvage the pieces. It sounds like, yeah. Tell us more. Yeah. So we, you know, as we're as we're working, we're working this stuff. Things get heated, and that's just. I mean, that's just. I don't care who you are. That's the nature of divorce. Things get heated. 
and I, I was lucky enough to have some counselors and friends in my life where, you know, I would call and kind of have a, a gripe session. And these people were like, consider what you've done. And it's like, I just kind of had a, another moment where I'm like, you know what, I got to do for her what I want to do for her. Not because I think, not because I think we're going to get together or that she's going to drop this. I just, I've got to continue to do the next right thing regardless. I can't expect anything from her. And I just, I got to realize what I put her through. So I just started to show up and I had, I basically figured that, you know, attorney's papers have been filed. This is over. So I just started to show up the best way I could for my kids, the best way I could for her. And she thought, man, thank God. She started to see that. And I think it was when I quit expecting something back from her results. Like you were, you were focusing on the action and not the result. (laughs) Exactly. And I remember I was getting ready to finish up the IOP portion of my treatment. I ended up going into aftercare following, but when I was getting ready to finish up my IOP and she had me over for dinner one night, I had to help my son with a project and had me, she had me over for dinner and we put the kids to bed, said some prayers, put the kids to bed and we're just sitting there visiting. And she goes, are you ever going to share any of this stuff that you've done in treatment with me. And I was like, well, I mean, if you want to, I didn't think that you wanted to hear any of it. I don't, I don't want to cram it down your throat because that's what I tried to do in the, in the beginning. I tried to everything, everything that I did, it was like I was having a daily show and tell with her because I was trying to prove to her. I was trying to do it for her. Uh-huh. Not for, look what I did. I ordered this book. I, I did this worksheet for treatment. I talked to the pastor today. It's like, I did this, I did this, I did this you know, accept me, accept me, accept me. And she didn't like at the time, I don't want to say that she didn't give a shit because she did. I mean, she cared, but she's like, man, you're my words didn't really mean a whole lot to her. And I, there was a good reason for that is, you know, cause I'd been full of crap for so long. Yeah. And, and crispy, gosh, before we hit the rapid fire on, I want to just, I'm curious to see your response to a couple of these questions that I throw out is, you know, what have you learned most about yourself in sobriety, Chris? Just that I'm worth it, Paul. I just, I spent so much time feeling like, just like I was a turd, like I was a piece of shit. And I just, you know, a happy life. I wasn't, wasn't worth a happy life, but man, I, I am. And we, we all are. And it just, it takes some work, but I am worth it. This life is worth it. Absolutely. And you have to get to a point to love yourself before you can realize that you're worth it. And that's something that I deeply explored within the last three months. Yeah, I know a little bit about that one. And Chris, you got this new life, man. I'm so excited for you. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety? Just to just to continue this, you know, like I was getting to when I when I finished treatment. Basically, the the short version I know we're getting long is that we ended up. Uh, she wanted to reconcile, and man, it took a lot of hard work for her to say that, and then for us to continue working on our relationship. We've done counseling through the treatment center, counseling through our pastoral staff counseling through a marriage and family counselor. And I just want to keep doing that with my wife and just what I want out of this sober life is just to continue to make memories with my family so that I just want a tight little tribe. I just want us to be close and, and have memories that'll carry us so we can have a future together. And and I just, that's, that's, it's real simple for me. I just want to show up for my family and be there for them. And I just, I want to try to help out, other people struggling with recovery, struggling with this. I just, I remember the pain that I felt and the hurt that I was going through. And I just want to share with people what recovery's done for me and what God's done for me. You know, I don't ask that question every interview. I've probably asked it 40 to 50 times. 
but I love how our priorities shift in sobriety and the responses are all altruistic. You're like, oh, you know, I, I want to build more relationships with people. I want to do this and that with my family, build memories. Never have I heard, I want to buy an F-150. I want a new, <laughs> I want a new house, right? Like that's, it's just, that stuff doesn't matter. And we can see it so clearly in sobriety. Hey, Chris, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's go for it. Number one, Chris, what was your worst memory from drinking? There's if I if I could throw several situations into one bucket, it would just be just that stuff that I said and did to to my wife and kids. Just some of those hurtful things that I said to my wife and the and the way that I made her feel and and some of those moments where I was just ride my kids and just I'll never forget some of those looks that those kids gave me when they were it, just to look at your kids and, and feel like they're genuinely scared of you because yeah. of how you're acting, man, that hurts. And I, I never want for that to happen again. Hey, Chris, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating you really can't control your drinking? I would say last summer when I when I told the wife, well, tell me who your lawyer is. And then when she left, oh, like that was exactly what I said. Oh, shit. What did you do? But it's, I don't want to say that I'm glad all that stuff went down because there was an incredible amount of pain for me and for my family. But it's, it's brought us to, it's brought us to a new place and, and God's always working and there's, you know, there's healing in the hurt. And Chris, how are you going to get day 295, get 300? What's your plan moving forward? Continue to work a program. I go to a big famous 12 uh, step group that everybody knows about. Try to keep in contact with my sponsor. There's another uh, faith-based 12-step program, Celebrate Recovery, that my wife and I actually go to together, keep going oh, to those meetings, cool. stay involved with, with Cafe RE, uh, Team Blue. Uh, <laughs> Team Blue. <laughs> Team Blue. Yeah, and just, just to stay to stay in it, I think the, the minute I feel like I got this or I don't need to go to a meeting that night or the, nope, that's the smack in the head, and just to stay involved, stay in my, pro, my program every day and just – keep working my recovery. And Chris, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? I'd have to say you don't have to be sober for the rest of your life today. Uh, when I first dried out, that's the thing that scared me the most. I didn't know how I was going to get through a dance, a fair, um, being out at the lake. I didn't know how I was going to get through all this stuff for the rest of my life without a drink. And as you work on your recovery, you'll develop those skills and, and you'll be able to understand how you can do that. But in the beginning, just just worry about the day that's in front of you. If that's too much, worry about the hour, worry about the minute, worry about the second. Whatever manageable amount of time you can grab, deal with that for the time being. And, and the rest will come as long as you're working, you're working on your recovery. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Just be honest with yourself. That's the most important thing. I lied to myself for so long. I told myself that there was going to be a time when normal drinking is going to come. It's just, I just got to get there. Or uh, I told myself that I was justified in doing these things because I had that terminal uniqueness. But if I would have really been honest with myself, that any trauma or trouble in my past is no excuse to treat people the way that I was treating or treating them or to do the things that I was doing. So just be honest with yourself and tell another person. Tell somebody that you trust because accountability and community is key and, and, and that'll help help get you where you need to go. And before we depart, Chris, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. You Might Be an Alcoholic 
if you wake up with less eyebrows on your body than you went to sleep with and more penises drawn on your body than you went to sleep with. <laughs> Chris, I know there's a photo floating out there. We're going to need this for the blog post. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to happen, Paul. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. Oh, that's a good one. That's that's just a full belly oh. laugh right there. There's uh, way too many of those mornings. Oh, uh, Chris. Yeah. You, you know, like RE Recovery Elevator 170, people are like, what's the new direction of the podcast? This is the new direction. We are just going to connect with people for longer. I, this was so awesome, Chris. I absolutely love chatting with you. It's the best way to start my day. So thank you very much. Thanks, brother. In episode 180, I'm going to go more into depth and explain why I drank. I feel I finally found the answer to the holy grail question that I've been asking for the last 15 years. During exploration of this question, I came to realize what my anxiety was. It had always been serving a purpose or it always been trying to tell me something. I realized that I'm a level 10 people pleaser. This people pleasing behavior, these tendencies, this internal system that I built, it served a purpose for a long time. I was one of three people in an elementary school that was non-Mormon. I wanted to fly under the radar as much as possible. I wanted to appease everybody. And this trait has followed me all the way up into the age of 36. I was able to look back at the times when I experienced extreme bouts of anxiety. Not so much after a binge, we talked about that's glutamate and GABA, but more of acute bouts of anxiety during periods of sobriety. That anxiety was rooted in a fear of rejection, a fear of being alone. It was telling me, whoa, wait a second, Paul, this internal mechanism that you had built is not working. People are getting mad at me. And this was like simple conversations I had in the professional workforce well before the Recovery Elevator podcast in my early 20s. Somebody would say, hey, Paul, I'm not really sure I like the way this paper looks. Can you change it? And my reaction, like I talked about earlier in this podcast episode, was not congruent with the current environment. The internal guardrails that I had built in my brain were not working. This sent a shock of anxiety to the center of my gut. It has become blatantly clear in my life that I am. I would like to say I was, but I still have a lot of work to do. I am a level 10 people pleaser. Episode 170 was so hard for me because I knew I was going to piss people off. I didn't want to talk about it. I still want to fly under the radar, but my heart knew I had to. So I was at this crossroads and what a tremendous opportunity. Several of my reactions had nothing to do with the approval or disapproval that I heard from the audience. In fact, just this morning, I got an email from somebody that gave me anxiety, but my reaction was different. And in fact, I'm going to read this anxiety. And I don't want to point this person out and say his reaction was wrong, because in fact, my reaction is wrong, right? I'm feeling this anxiety that's not congruent. I don't know this person. I don't. I respect what the person has to say. And the anxiety that I'm feeling isn't matching up with what it really is. So I'm going to read the email, and this is from Rick, and it's about episode 170, The Heart and Soul. Here goes. I'm a complete believer in plant medicine. As a preface, I was happy to hear episode 170. I was not happy to hear it be a built-up rant about Paul Churchill. The way the information was conveyed was a self-absorbed mess that you repeatedly addressed with basically an FU to your listeners that have questions or criticisms. It was so strange. You seemed high or something. You rarely drop an F-bomb, yet your podcast was littered with them. Fine, one or two helps to establish, but your usage was reckless. I don't get you, Paul. Follow your heart, I suppose. 
I'm trying hard to find a good resource. I wish you had delivered this very important and sensitive message in a more responsible way. This one is completely on you. Rick, I'll be honest, you raised some valid concerns. <laughs> and you're not the first one to say, Paul, were you high or something? The answer was no. It was not high on anything. I'm awake. That's the difference. I'm awake and I'm feeling. When I first read that, in the exact same spot in my gut, this boom, this flash of anxiety showed up. I was no longer pleasing people. This mechanism that I had built in like my early childhood was not working, and it hurt. But like I just mentioned earlier in this podcast episode, I reread this email several times. I read it slow, word for word, and it got easier. And like I just said, I'm rewiring my brain. I am now aware of this trait, this, this internal system, this internal narrative dialogue that I built up in my brain. It's not healthy, and it no longer serves a purpose. Rick, if I could go back and record 170 again, well, actually, I, I can do that. Um, you know, but would I do it differently? Sure, maybe I would. But I did my best, and that's all I can do. And when people pleasers stop pleasing people, people aren't going to be very pleased. And that's not me riding off into the sunset saying goodbye, people-pleasing traits. It's something I have to work on. But it wasn't till only recently was I able to look internally to find the answers. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Hey.